Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. The ongoing crisis with Russia and Ukraine really is an enigma wrapped inside a riddle. Why? Why now? Who benefits? And really, what can the U.S. and its Western allies do about it? I decided to ask strategic affairs maven Michael Moran about it. Mike Moran has been reporting the first rough draft of history of many aspects of this crisis for decades. He was a reporter in Germany in the heady days of post-Cold War reunification, then the American affairs specialist of the BBC World Service, foreign editor of MSNBC.com at its launch, before seeking towards think tank world and running the Council on Foreign Relations news website. He recently made a documentary, U.S.-Russia, Quest for Stability, for the Carnegie Corporation. He knows whereof he speaks. I started our conversation by asking him what he thought caused the current crisis. Well, there's several things that have tended to incentivize this kind of behavior from Russia. One is when the U.S. has been distracted. If you remember in 2008, when uh, Russian forces gotten involved in a war with Georgia, the Republic of Georgia, it was also a period of tumult in the United States. The global financial crisis was raging. Obama and McCain were going at each other. The, the, the nation was quite divided. This is uh, pulled from an, a similar script. The United States is deeply divided. Its relationship with China, which is quite relevant to this, has been sliding. And then I'd say there's another factor. If you look at the Georgia war in 2008, you look at the seizure of Crimea in 2014, these both took place as oil prices were at or near historic highs. That's important because ever since Crimea, Putin has realized he needs to sanctions proof the Russian economy. There's been a lot of policy put in place in order to make him less vulnerable to Western sanctions and all sorts of unilateral uh, moves the United States might make. And to do this at a time when oil prices are high means that his sovereign wealth fund, in other words, his slush fund, is being topped up on a daily basis by $90 a barrel oil prices. So I think that's definitely part of the background noise here. Well, carry on. The other thing I would point out is that this is a very much a unfinished business for Vladimir Putin and the Russian uh, government's policies. Uh, it's incursions into Ukraine, first of all, the seizure of Crimea. And then, of course, you can't, uh, it, it's easy to forget in the West, but there is a ongoing, simmering, low level war being fought in the Donbass region, which Russia uh, sponsored uh, Ukrainian Russians to seize in 2015. Um, that's turned into a bit of a bleeding ulcer for Russia. I remember back when Crimea was seized, I, I was uh, on a panel with Gideon Rose, who was the um, editor of foreign, foreign Affairs at the time. And he made the comment that Crimea, you can have it. He said, you'll be paying for that for the next century, just because it is a not a productive area. It's a, it's a dog of an economy. It's not a place that is going to produce any particular benefits to Russia other than um, showing what Putin can do if he wants to do it. Um, so it really was domestic audience in mind when he made that move. And now he's stuck paying for it. And on, on the worst side, 
he's also stuck in a low-level guerrilla war with Ukrainian forces in the uh, eastern part of Ukraine. I went to Ukraine a couple of times, most recently in 2018. Everybody knows that there's a low-level war going on in the Donbass region. It, it never really stopped after 2014. Yet the country, when I went in 2018, seemed, you know, relatively normal, you know, and people were going about their business, and it seemed tolerated. The relationship between today's Ukrainian polity and the Russian government is strange from a distance. I mean, there isn't as much tension and fear in the streets as you might think. You know, Michael, you and I spent time in the Balkans. There, there's some interesting parallels here. So that I'm going to get kind of wonky historical now. But um, during World War One, Ukraine was split in half. It was part of part Russian Empire, part Austria-Hungary. So Ukrainians fought on two sides of that war. And when Russia bowed out in 20 in 1917, excuse me, um, the Ukrainians declared independence. The Austria-Hungarians couldn't prevent it. The Russians couldn't prevent it. And so for five years, they had an independent state and there was a degree of unity. But when it began to fall apart was when the Russian empire section of this new state began to be lured into the Russian orbit again. And that section is exactly where Lukonst and, and Donetsk is. Uh, that's where the fighting is now. So for Western Ukrainians, if you want to call them that, who are oriented toward EU membership and possible NATO membership, who are much more interested in a, in a conventional democracy with problems, as all conventional democracies have, as they look at the Russian side, this can't be a, new, a huge surprise to them. There is a open recognition that most of the uh, eastern side of Ukraine is ethnic Russian. That doesn't mean they're pro-Kremlin, but they're certainly ethnic Russian. And they did have some complaints about the way previous Ukrainian governments treated, for instance, the Russian language. You know, the idea that they would be expected to speak Ukrainian in official situations was very annoying to them because they they look at Ukrainian the way the Serbs look at Macedonian. It's just a fake language. It's Serbian dressed up for nationalist reasons. So there are some parallels there, I think, in this larger entity, Serbia in the Balkan Wars, Russia in these wars, have a certain prerogative that even the victims of their bullying tend to recognize. Yeah, it's in, you know you you mentioned the western part of Ukraine. My first trip, I was doing a piece on a, a nakedly and openly neo-Nazi party had been elected to the regional council around Lviv, and they were openly anti-Semitic. There aren't that many Jews left in Ukraine anyway, and certainly not very many outside of Lviv in western Ukraine. They were all killed. And I went and I did, did a piece about them, and it was amazing to me. This party, Svoboda, had been elected, and, and I, they weren't in the majority on the provincial council. They were the second party. Anyway, they had important portfolios to carry. 
And it was a very unpleasant interview. And one of the things they said is that they wanted a civil war. They wanted, they wanted to fight Russia. That was in 2012. And in 2014, they all went to Kiev and took place in the Maidan demonstrations. And I saw their flags right up at the front where there was exchanges of gunfire. And when I went back in 2018 uh, and was in Lviv, it was much more pleasant. They, they seemed to have faded completely. And I asked someone, what happened to Svoboda? And they said, oh, they all went out to, to, to the eastern part of the country and they're fighting in the Donbass. So that there has always been this minority within Ukraine that has been looking for a fight. And they're, they're enjoying it, I imagine, out there in the eastern part of the country. So there's that instability. But I, I want to go back to this current crisis and say, ask you, what is it that you think the Biden administration was trying to do by suddenly announcing to the world, through anonymous briefings to the Washington Post and New York Times, that Russia was preparing to invade? I think what's happening is that the Biden administration is playing a poor hand as baldly and boldly as it can. The, the reaction of the Biden administrations to date has been to act as if severe consequences will flow from any invasion. Um, I actually think that Biden and his advisors know that it's very unlikely that Russia is going to invade Ukraine. I honestly agree with that. I, I believe what's happening here is that Putin is trying to show the impotence of the West in the near abroad, as they like to think of it, um, and that Putin is very happy to see any kind of bellicose language from the West about this because it only serves his interests in cementing closer ties with China. That's the big game. Um, in any case, when you ask about what Biden is trying to accomplish, well, certainly he, he, he's trying not to be Neville Chamberlain. <laughs> he, he's been told essentially that we could settle this all if you just uh, you know, give us Ukraine, essentially. That's what Putin's strategic um, play or his ploy was in saying this is the opening rounds of the negotiations. You have to promise that uh, Ukraine will never be allowed to join NATO. Biden couldn't do that, obviously, um, although I do believe there were some uh, European members of NATO who would have been very happy to do it. Um, so the other part of it is he needs to show that there's some political leverage that the United States can bring other than economic sanctions, which, as I said, Putin has prepared himself for and sees largely as a bluff some of the more severe sanctions cutting Russia off from the global energy markets or cutting it off from the SWIFT system, that's not going to fly. Germans are not going to allow it. And the U.S. does not have the capacity to make up for the oil that would disappear from global markets. And so it would, have, it would basically serve to destroy Biden's political career because uh, you know gas prices and oil prices would go through the roof. So I think Putin is playing this fairly savvy game of, hey, I'm going to invade. What are you going to do about it? He's trying to unmask the fact that Biden really can't do much about it. But he's not planning to invade. No, I don't think so. I really think, he, he, you know, he, he wants to show the impotence of the West in the face of this type of a threat. You know, it, it, 
it's kind of an interesting thing that he would go to this trouble just to show impotence. Well, it, it's a pretty powerful deterrent to what he might call misbehavior on the part of former Soviet states. Um, and, you know, he could extend this to include non-Soviet actors, <laughs> so to speak, to, to go back to the old language, um, you know, in, in Europe. I mean, you see Poland and Hungary increasingly divided over the relationship with Russia and their, their views of Putin and how he runs his society. So, you know, he's always looking for ways to put a lever into the Western alliance uh, to show that this umbrella that the United States supposedly extends in security terms above Europe is really uh, a Potemkin umbrella. Um, and that, you know, sending a couple of National Guards troops to the Baltics is really no defense against what Russia may someday decide to do. Vladimir Putin didn't have to put 130,000, 150,000, 200,000, every day the number goes up, troops within striking distance of Kiev to show the world that uh, America is some kind of paper tiger. I mean, the whole world, I think, can see that American society is in a pretty wretched condition and uh, entirely divided without any external pressure. I mean, this isn't even the divisions of the Cold War in the 1950s when, you know, re you know, during the McCarthy uh, era, when reasonable citizens were suddenly having their careers destroyed because they were giving the wrong answers to certain questions. That was divisions in American society, and God knows that, you know, anti-Vietnam War demonstrators showed that, you know, the country had gone off on some adventure and had left half of the public behind. And that says nothing compared to the division that we see in America today, where there's literally not a functioning federal legislature. So why does Putin, why does Putin have to go to the trouble? Good question. There's also no political will to exercise American power beyond its borders at this point, um, unless the threat is just absolutely imminent. So what you've seen with the Iraq and Afghan wars is a complete destruction of the internationalist wings of both major American parties. There is no foreign policy hawk. It's easy to be a hawk when you're tied to the nest, you know. Uh, you can squawk all you want, but everybody knows there's no there's no major U.S. military action going to happen out of this. Um, the other part part of it, though, is you know we tend to underestimate um, how threatening Russians look at NATO membership of something like Ukraine or Georgia. They uh, have been conditioned by years of Kremlin. Uh, controlled media and propaganda to think that the be-all and end-all of all American administrations would be to somehow surround Russia and topple the government in power and put uh, some kind of lackeys in place who would, uh, you know, basically be part of the Western-dominated global economy and impoverish Russians to the benefit of the West. 
I mean, this is the kind of narrative. And Ukraine is a very big chunk of what was the former Soviet empire. It's the, the prospect of it joining NATO is terrifying to the Russians. Um, so there is a real thing there. And they, uh, the Kremlin has expertly uh, manipulated that issue to its benefit. It, it, it's the kind of issue, as with Taiwan for China, which immediately gets people into the streets, the type of people who vote for Putin's party, um, and which destroys the debate on anything else that's going on in Russia. When's the last time you heard the name Navalny? Right? All under the umbrella of all this kind of uh, military tension, hit not just Alexei Navalny, but everybody associated with him has been rounded up and silenced. Let me just shift over. You said something earlier that I found interesting that this is about also Putin's relationship with China. Tell me a bit more about that. I jokingly on Twitter put up something a week or two ago saying, where's Henry Kissinger when you need him to separate Russia and China? And it's like they're reconnecting 50 years after Nixon, yeah, it's the 50th anniversary of Nixon's trip to China. So tell me a bit more about that and, and that, what that means geopolitically in this moment. So this is a very interesting topic. There is almost a corollary that the more that the United States and the West criticize Russia, the more China feels incentivized to come to Russia's defense. In previous crises, the Chinese method of doing this was not vocal. It was basically to abstain or be obstructive in international diplomatic bodies like the United Nations Security Council which are completely irrelevant to international affairs today, I'm sorry to say. They, they are, it, just like the U.S. Congress, it's, it's a legislature that's not um, performing. But what has happened of late, and we saw this during the opening phase of the Olympics when Putin was there and she made it very clear that he regarded Russia's concerns about U.S. interference in its fear of influence as very legitimate. We're now seeing the kind of victory of a Kremlin mode of thought that has been called convergence. There's a faction within the Kremlin and within the circle of advisors uh, that are around Putin who have wanted for years to convince China that it is in China's interest to converge with Russia to stand against the alleged hegemony of the West and to pick away uh, and eventually destroy things like dollar denomination in the global economy, the uh, Bretton Woods institutions of the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and perhaps the United Nations itself. So this is now happening. And it was very interesting at the opening of the Olympics, she declared a new era in the global order. Those are his precise term. And he has essentially opened up the relationship with Russia to a strategic dialogue that didn't exist before. For decades, the U.S. and the Russian and Chinese relationships has, have been somewhat triangulated, as you referred to. This was Henry Kissinger's brilliant move. 
that's kind of collapsed. It's, we're now looking at a situation where the United States is on the outside with a diminishing group of allies in terms of their willingness to engage in geopolitical events um, and their vulnerability to Russian energy and Chinese market power is huge. So it's a shift. And it's a shift that we might look back at in, you know, Xi's declaration, the opening of the Olympics could be looked back at as Winston Churchill's speech in Fulton, Missouri in 1946, as the beginning of something very different, a real second Cold War, which I hope doesn't happen, but which is sliding in, the, in that direction, regardless of my hopes and many of people's hopes. In retrospect, the era of extreme partisanship, which began in, in 1994 in America with the Newt Gingrich takeover of the House of Representatives, coincided with the need not to be disciplined about how you conduct yourself as a democracy, in which markets could be as selfish and greedy as they like. You know, I come from the left side of the equation, and I, I never think of markets as you know being particularly unselfish. But leaving that aside, what what happened was the discipline that once marked and characterized uh, American democracy at, in, at the government level seemed to have disappeared. And I sometimes wonder if people wish that there was another Cold War coming, because at least then we'll, we'd have the discipline, we'd have to have the discipline, if, unless we wanted to lose the Cold War, to read, we'd have to discipline and rediscover how to govern ourselves properly. Do you ever let that thought go through your head, or is that just me? No, I think that's very valid, and I think there's a, there's another thing that happened just around 1994, and it, it is very relevant to this conversation, and that's NAFTA. And you remember the debates with Ross Perot, the giant sucking sound of American jobs to going to Mexico, um, most on the kind of liberal left, and even centrist Republicans kind of laughed that off. No, free markets will solve all problems. Well, those turned out that wasn't completely crazy. And a lot of the partisanship that is emanating from the United States right now is about a big chunk of the United States who's been left behind and they say, this is not working for me, pal. And that's how you get Donald Trump. This is um, part of the dysfunction is the fact that this enormous globalized economy that was supposed to lift all boats mostly lifted the three billion boats that were on the other side of the Cold War or who were in the non-aligned movement, the uh, developing world. It did not particularly help the American working class, and it did nothing really to uh, make the United States feel as though it got much back from what we see in our own psychosis as our victory in the Cold War. Throughout these last 90 days, as uh, we've waited, we're recording this on February 16th, 2022, a date that we had been told confidently by State Department reporters and White House correspondents was the day that the Biden administration expected the invasion to take place. And of course it hasn't. What do you think about the way the press has handled these last three months as this crisis has built up? 
the diplomatic coverage, I think, has been quite, quite poor. I think it's been naive. I think there's been a lot of um, taking statements at face value. And maybe I'm cynic, but I see calculation behind public statements from governments, whether they're uh, from coming from Washington, London, you know, Berlin, or from Moscow. Um, and I think particularly the coverage of Germany and its, its hand-sitting has been terrible. The Germans have done nothing because they fear uh, desperately um, the Russian gas weapon. While they're retiring their nuclear plants, they're going to replace it with Russian gas. And that is deeply relevant to the crisis we're now facing. So how do you expect the crisis to play out? So I think um, it's worth a moment to talk about what would actually happen if it went military, right? I've dismissed that for the most part, but there are 105 battalion tactical groups on the border. The scarier ones, frankly, are the ones, the smaller group that's on the Belarusian-Ukrainian border, which is very close to Kiev. They could take Kiev very quickly. Now, taking Baghdad and holding Baghdad, as you know, are two very different things. But they could take Kiev probably relatively quickly. And there are some estimates that are saying within a week of, of any invasion. Now, those groups, uh, and when I say battalion tactical group, that's, you know, wonky, but it's up 600 to 1,000 troops. And like the U.S. combat or brigade combat teams that we used to hear about in Iraq, these are self-contained. They have their own artillery, their own anti aircraft stuff, their own supplies. It's not like a division of old where everything moved in this massive, um, you know, 50,000 man blob. These are uh, very much independently uh, capable units, which is the kind of unit you would want there. So that's interesting. My analysis, and I think this is probably the consensus that the Biden administration doesn't want to admit because it undermines their rhetoric, is that it won't come to war. What's more likely is that we'll see more of the kind of cyber attacks that happened this week on the Ukrainian banking system. Um, we're going to see an upsurge in violence in the Donbass region because everyone pays lip service to the Minsk II agreement, which was brokered by France and Germany in 2015 after the last flare-up, which calls for Ukraine to recognize and grant autonomy to Donetsk and Luhansk, which are the Russian, uh, ethnic Russian regions that are now in control of ethnic Russian forces. But no one wants that to happen. The Russians kind of would rather see those peeled off and become much more like the statelets in South Ossetia and Georgia and some areas of Moldova where, where they where they kind of have these little mini statelets that are very much in, uh, in, in league with Mos Moscow. And the Germans and the French who brokered the accord um, probably aren't overly enthusiastic about pushing it right now either because it doesn't solve anything. Um, Donetsk and Luhansk are essentially independent. <laughs> the, the Ukrainian government does, has almost no control over what happens there. So I think there'll be a flare-up in that area because the uh, Kremlin does not want that agreement to be uh, put into 
force, and and I think that's likely to be the the diversion for the slow withdrawal of the troops that are on the border. The Biden administration would have no leverage. It would just have to allow that to happen. Well, it does give the Biden administration the uh, tenuous ability to declare some kind of a victory if there's no war. Um, just as you know, anyone who appears at the great long table with Putin is essentially being given a gift. You matter. I, I deign to see you. <laughs> um, I think uh, the slow withdrawal or de-escalation de would give that same gift to the Biden administration. And, you know, who knows? Maybe oil prices start to go down and they need that. You know, I could keep talking to you forever about oil prices and how nearly 50 years after the first oil shocks, America's economy and from it, its political fate is still based on the price of oil that others pump out of the ground. Petroleum products, this is natural gas, can still completely ruin, shape a decade of, of a society's existence. I find it extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting power couples of Washington are Angela Stent, who is a very prominent uh, Russia analyst who has been uh, raising the alarm recently about the Russia-China kind of convergence. She's married to Daniel Jurgen, who is the godfather of global oil, really, analysis, a very, very uh, kind of esteemed and, and a objective analyst of oil. I, and I, I've spoke to J Daniel Jurgen relatively recently. And, you know, he, he points out what all analysts will point out. Russia needs high oil prices in order to balance its budget. It's its main source of hard currency. It's one of the reasons it, it so deeply resents the dollar dominance of the global economy, because it needs those dollars to, uh, to pay its pensions and pay the military and to pay off the oligarchs. But Russia does not have something magical that used to be in the hands of the United States and then was in the hands of the Saudis. That is excess capacity. Until the early 1970s, something called the Texas Railroad Commission had the ability to turn on the, uh, the spigot or turn it down and control global oil prices. Then it lost that um, power to OPEC and mostly the Saudis. And the Saudis really had it until the rise of fracking in about 2014 or so. And now no one's got it. I mean, there's a bit of spare capacity in Saudi Arabia. The Russians have a little bit. But there's not enough to make up for the demand of a world that is emerging from the global pandemic. And so oil prices are kind of, everybody's pumping at capacity practically. The United States is almost always pumping at capacity because its oil uh, is largely coming from fracking, which, and those guys are wildcats. They are out there get, giving everything they can because fracking wells don't last for 30 years. They last for five or six. So they want to make money while the getting's good, while the prices are high. So there's very little ability of the United States, currently the largest oil producer in the world, to affect global oil prices because it has no excess of capacity. 
So it's a really ironic situation we find ourselves in. All of it benefiting mostly the world's worst actors, the Iranians, the, the uh, you know, Russians, uh, the Equatorial Guinea, they're all thriving because of high oil prices. We'll have to talk about that another time. Mike Moran, thank you very, very much. Well, Michael, hopefully we will continue this conversation. It's an honor to be on your podcast. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. You can hear more, lots more at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. And while you're there, please make a donation. They really do help me keep the podcast going. Thanks.